there and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. Here we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Hello there. And if you are new to the Bold Love podcast, where have you been (laughs) on this podcast? We are looking to explore some paths and discussions of what does it look like to love your neighbor or even love your quote unquote enemies? What does a world look like where people of other religions hold on to their faith while engaging with people who may have different views of the world? It is also a storytelling podcast on the lives of bridge builders that are really making a difference in the world by modeling this loving your neighbor behavior. Thank you so much for joining us. And a quick reminder that all of our podcast episodes from season one and a couple from season two are available to listen to on your preferred podcast player, or you can go to bobrobertsjr.com. Guests like Beth Moore, Ambassador Sam Brownback, Dr. Russell Moore, so many more uh, you can listen to there. So go and check those out for sure. Today, our guest is Rich Stearns. He is an author and president emeritus of World Vision, which is one of the world's largest nonprofit humanitarian organizations. Over his two decades with, with the organization, Rich built strong leadership teams focused on bringing corporate best practices into the nonprofit sector. He has traveled to more than 60 of the 100 countries in which World Vision has a presence. He has served as a prophetic voice in leadership, calling on the American church to respond to the AIDS pandemic in the early 2000s, and later raising awareness of the global refugee crisis and global poverty. Uh, As a thought leader, Rich has appeared regularly on media outlets such as Christianity Today, Fox News, CNN, NPR, and Relevant Magazine. Rich is an author of several books, including his best-selling and award-winning The Whole in Our Gospel. He has also wrote a book called Unfinished and most recently has just published a new book called Lead like it matters to God, which we will talk to him about in our interview today. So for more information on Rich and uh, including show notes and links, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com for that information there. So here you go. Here's Rich's conversation with the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. Enjoy. I am so excited today to have one of my heroes, uh, Rich Stearns. Uh, He made my day one day when I was tweeting. And I noticed that he'd followed me. What is this guy doing following me, Bob Roberts? But uh, it made my day. I'd read his book, A Hole in Our Gospel, and I went crazy over it. Because the truth of the matter is, the first 33 years of my life, even though I'd accepted Christ and was pastoring, I knew nothing about the kingdom of God. And that little concept wrecked my world, redefined my faith, and led me into this crazy life that I have now. And it did the same to Rich. So many of you have read uh, A Hole in Our Gospel and phenomenal book. Uh, But he's come out with a new book. It's called Lead Like It Matters to God. I really like that title, like a slogan, Lead Like It Matters to God. I think it does matter to God. What a great statement. And then he says, values-driven leadership in a a success-driven world. No one has lived in the public square more than Rich Stearns. Uh, as a businessman, CEO, very successful. He's the head of World Vision, saw it grow like no other time in its history. 
uh, has impacted the world in a profound way. And now he's got this new book out in which he's given some leadership gold of, of what's happened. And so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, so, Rich, thank you for being here. Welcome to Bow Love Podcast. Well, thank you, Bob. And uh, you may not know it. You're one of my heroes. You know, I've uh, kind of followed your career a bit over the years and have just been so impressed to uh, you're a remarkable uh, pastor with many, many different dimensions to you. And, uh, you know, I've just seen the way God's blessed your ministry. Let's, let's do this for the sake of people who maybe don't know uh, about you. We have a global audience, Rich, uh, uh, and people listen to it from all over the world. A lot of government leaders, educational leaders and uh, Christians and pastors, but people of all faiths as well. You had a successful corporate uh, career as a CEO, and then you landed at World Vision, the the world's largest Christian humanitarian organization, and you worked with people of different faiths, countries, so forth. T- tell tell our listeners a little bit about how does a CEO of Linux get all the way over to being the CEO of World Vision? Just curious. Yeah, well, that's that's a long story, but. Um, uh, I became a Christian in uh, in graduate school. I was actually at the Wharton School of Business getting an MBA, and I may be the only person that's ever bowed their knee to uh, give their life to Christ at the Wharton School, but because uh, <laughs> that's not the God they worship there. But um, but anyways, when I gave my life to the Lord, I remember that halting prayer that says, "I don't really know what to do next uh, as a follower of you, Lord," but here's what I do know. I want to live my life for you. I want to go where you send me. I want to do what you call me to do and, uh, you know, kind of take my life. That was, that was my, my message. And so, as you said, I, I graduated from Wharton. I, I had a, a great business career. I, uh, I became president of Parker Brothers Games of all, of all the companies you could imagine with Nerf Balls and Monopoly and Clue and Sorry and, uh, I was 33 when I became the CEO of Parker Brothers, and I went on to become the CEO of Lennox, the luxury goods, fine china, and crystal company. And uh, uh, but all through that career, my question was, Lord, uh, where, where do you want me to go? Uh, you know, I'm I'm here, I'm available. Uh, and so in 1998, I got a call from an executive recruiter. I was the CEO of Lennox China. I was doing really well. I was at the height of my career in my mid forties and uh, just starting to get into my good earning years uh, in terms of financial rewards, had five little kids that we were raising in Pennsylvania. And this recruiter calls and says, world Vision's looking for a new president for the U S office. And my first reaction was I'm not qualified. I'm not available and I'm not interested. You know, it's, it's like, I, I've never been to Africa. I don't know anything about global poverty. Other than that, I'm a perfect candidate, you know. <laughs> and yet, through a, a whole series of events that I write about in a little bit in this book, and and certainly in my former book, The Hole in Our Gospel, um, somehow God had His finger on me that this was what He had for me. This was what He was calling me to do. I felt it very profoundly, and uh, surprisingly, the board of directors. Uh, after interviewing all the candidates, selected me. And uh, I I questioned their sanity at the time. uh, And uh, with great 
agony, I made that decision and, and, and left my career uh, behind at Lenox and jumped into the fray at World Vision. And as you mentioned, you know, I, I spent the next 20 years of my career at World Vision. I ended up being the longest serving president in their 70 year history. Um, and the Lord took me on a ride that, you know, I'll never forget. It was just an amazing opportunity to see the world, meet the world's people, you know, go into the mud huts of the poorest of the poor and pray with them and listen to their prayers and um, and, and doing it all knowing that, you know, we're helping, we're making a difference, we're loving our neighbors, we're, uh, uh, we're making the gospel real, we're putting flesh on the gospel, and, and it was just a great privilege to serve. Your new book, uh, Lead Like It Matters to God, uh, before you get into the book, uh, one of the opening uh, pages with the title and table of contents, the first one has Matthew 6.33. That's my life verse. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Or kingdom of heaven is really what it says in Matthew. Uh, Why did you put that verse there? Did the editor do that, or did that mean something to you? I'm just curious. No, I put it there. And it, it really, you know, it's been a very important verse in my life as well, because First of all, it's a pretty deep theological question about the kingdom of God. You know, there have been tomes and tomes of books written on the kingdom of God, and I don't have a seminary degree, so I'm in dangerous water to even try to talk about it. But, um, you know, I put it there because as a leader, as a Christian leader, uh, we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not seek first success and fame and wealth and you know, advancement in our career, but to seek first his kingdom. And if we do that, I believe that God, all those other things will happen. We all will have a work life and a career of some kind if we're in the, in the marketplace or in the workplace. And, but we can trust that to the Lord if we put his kingdom first and serving him first. So that was why I put it in there because it's all about getting your priorities right. You know, it's good. God and his kingdom before me and my kingdom (laughs) and my ambitions. And I say in the book, uh, you know, we must sacrifice our ambitions as leaders. We must sacrifice our ambitions for Christ's ambitions for us. So we replace our ambitions, right? We all have ambitions. You know, did I want to be a CEO? Sure, I did. But that should not be my goal. My my goal should be to serve God in his kingdom. And if I become a CEO as a byproduct of that, that's fine. God's in it and he can use it. Uh, And if he doesn't want me to be a CEO, that's okay too. You know, that's okay too, because that's not why I'm living on earth today uh, to be a CEO or to be to achieve X, Y, or Z. I'm living on earth to serve Christ and build his kingdom. So, a little bit about the kingdom of God. First of well, all, I believe what I that, like about that, Rich, yeah. you don't have a separation between sacred and secular. Okay, I'm CEO at World Vision. I'm CEO at Linux. They both matter. And uh, I, I think we've lost that. I'm glad you're on this because my son is a businessman. He feels called to be a businessman. And uh, I think that call is just as legit. When I got into the kingdom of God, Dallas Willard, his book, Divine Conspiracy, just yeah. rocked my world. I'm curious, have you heard of him? Did he oh, have I've an read impact that book? On, yeah. Really? Yeah. Did it have a pretty big impact on you? Well, it really did. I mean, 
you know, I read a lot of Christian books and, you know, each one kind of adds to my understanding of God's kingdom and, and, and kind of builds my, my theological depth and understanding. Yeah. But Dallas Willard was a, a wonderful author. And um, I got into his footnotes. He got me into Bonhoeffer and then he got me into Tolstoy, the Russians and Gandhi. You know, he meditated on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's how he changed, mm-hmm. changed the world with what he did. Let me ask you this, uh, the the title, Lead Like It Matters to God, and and basically you say that God is more concerned about a leader's character than success. Uh, Unpack that for us. Well, yeah, so the book was inspired by a story about Mother Teresa that I heard a number of years ago, and you've probably heard it too because you've been in the humanitarian world for a long time. But uh, the story goes that Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon was visiting Mother Teresa. And I don't know if this was in the 1980s or 1990s, um, but he was visiting her in Calcutta and her ministry in the center of the slums of Calcutta. This little group of nuns were caring for the poor and the sick and the dying. And that, of course, that made Mother Teresa a, a globally famous person, this little four foot nine inch nun. But the senator, you know, kind of surveying the situation and being an analytical person, you know, he realized that this tiny little group of nuns, it's like spitting in the ocean. There's no way they can solve poverty in Calcutta. Uh, There was an ocean of humanity that was suffering around her ministry. And so he said to her, Mother Teresa, um, you can't possibly succeed in eliminating poverty in Calcutta, you've worked here for 40 years and poverty's worse today than it was when you started. And he was essentially asking her, don't you feel like a failure? Um, and I, I try to imagine that moment where this four foot nine inch nun waved her little finger up at Senator Hatfield. And she said these words and these words, I think it's 14 words, really transformed our idea of what success is all about. And uh, she said, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. He called me to be faithful. And so that was so inspiring to me. I I felt she'd put her finger on it, that we are not called to be successful. And Bob, we we live in America in a success-marinated culture. Everything is about success in this country. The winningest football team, you know, the the most famous celebrity, the, the, the 400 wealthiest people in the world, uh, the fastest growing companies, the fastest growing churches, the biggest mega churches. Everything is about success. We, I say in the book, it's like a colorless, odorless gas, like carbon monoxide, wow. that we don't even know we're breathing it, but it can be very deadly in our lives if we make success our idol. And so <clears throat> this is what my book is about to say, it's not about success. It's about being faithful. For the Christian, faithfulness is success. If you end your life, I have, one of the stories I tell in the book is the pastor in Ithaca, New York, when I went to Cornell University, he married my wife and I, and he, for 40 or 50 years, he ministered to Cornell students coming through uh, Ithaca, New York for four years, and many of them going to his church. His church was never more than about 200 people, and there were times it was less than 100 people going to his church. And he ministered there for 50 years. So the world would say he was not a success. You know, the successful pastors have 20,000 member churches. You know, 
18 campuses, uh, you know, huge ministries. And, and I would argue that he was faithful with what was in front of him. And, and the Lord is going to proclaim him a tremendous success for being faithful in what was right in front of him, what the Lord gave him to do. And that pastor, who's now 90, Merrill Stern is, is his name, he influenced generations of Cornell students. I was one of them. I, I was wow. one of these atheist kids that, you know, got dragged to his church one day. And then as I met my wife and she was a Christian, wow. this pastor really what formed my my faith early in my 20s. <clears throat> and uh, And how many more are like me that he influenced? And we'll only know. You know, and last comment about this whole success-driven world that we live in, we all imagine the day we'll stand before the Lord, and the Bible says we'll have to give an accounting for our life. And, you know, try as I may, I cannot imagine the Lord being impressed that I became a CEO when I was 33, that I sold a lot of toys and board games, that, you know, <laughs> I raised the Linux China market share from 26% to 45%. Um I don't think the Lord is impressed by any of that. The title on your business card, the size of your bank account, the, the number of you know accolades you've received. Yeah. What he's going to do is he's going to ask what Mother Teresa was talking about. Were you faithful? Were you faithful with what I gave you? And did you live a life of character uh, as my ambassador, uh, showing the world the character of my son, Jesus Christ? How did you treat the people around you that I entrusted to your leadership? Um, how did you raise your family? Um, how did you minister to your friends and your community? Those are the things that matter, not success. That's and good. so values-driven leadership is about being a leader who leads from a core set of values, integrity, humility, excellence, courage, perseverance, all of these values that I believe are Christian values innately. And uh, so that's what I'm calling for people to be as leaders, you know, be driven by your values and your beliefs and put God above success. My heart's heavy because uh, as a pastor, Rich, the church is very sick right now in America. Everybody knows it. It's no secret. Uh, from consumerism to celebrity pastors, celebrity positions, and uh, I have a good friend. He was your friend as well, Bob Buford, who uh, started two different organizations, one leadership network for pastors to teach us to manage and organize, another one, Halftime, uh, that had an impact on your life, uh, that was working with business leaders. But the great tragedy is, looking back on that, there was a big assumption that as our churches grew, so was our character growing, and it wasn't. And so now... I think the church in many ways and pastors are no different from a corporate CEO. It's, you know, and I think the reason, I think the real reason that we want success more than faithfulness is we really have a theological problem. And that's simply this. We really don't believe that God holds the future and that he is self-sufficient in himself and we cannot make things happen apart from him. So, so I, I'm excited about this and, and, and what it says. And I think it's, I think it's critical uh, for us to be out there. You also said something in the book I liked a lot. You're speaking my language when you said this, that God has called us to change the world. And uh, I think as we're faithful to him, we do. I mean, 
Bob, I get to do all kind of, Rich, I get to do all kinds of things about Bob Buford. I get to do all kind of crazy stuff. And it's not because I was trained, educated, positioned, but it was uh, a, a server who dropped a bunch of trays who I wound up helping him pick up his trays in, in the U.S. at a at one of those, uh, uh, you know, buffet places. And he was humiliated and crying, and I felt sorry for the little guy. I had no idea he was a king's son of another country, but it opened the world up for me. And I, my life is stories of, of that, small moments. Talk to me about changing the world. I mean, my word, if anybody had a shot at that, World Vision, look, look at your job. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, um, putting God first in your life and committing your life to Christ is really just the first step in a process of being repurposed. God wants to repurpose every one of his followers. He wants to replace, again, our ambitions with his ambitions for us. Um, and Christ gave the church and every Christian a mission. And that mission was to go into the world, you know, to go into the world uh, literally into the brokenness of the world. I mean, Christ came because the world was broken and it needed healing. It needed redemption. It needed forgiveness. It needed grace. And so we are those transformed people who have experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness and, and God's wholeness. And now our job is to go out as his ambassadors into the brokenness of the world as repairers and restorers and redeemers uh, of the brokenness. And so, you know, that's kind of a heavy theological concept, but I, I like to use a simple analogy. There's a couple of analogies I use. One is that the church should be like the world's firefighters, right? So what do firefighters do? Whenever there's a fire, a crisis, they rush into the crisis. They rush into the fire when everyone else is running away from it. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to put out the fire. They're trying to restore, you know, the building, the family, the, the situation. Well, that's not a bad picture of the church's job in the world. The, the world is on fire. Uh, there's poverty. There's genocide. There's crisis at our border. There, there are refugees desperately seeking asylum and fleeing from violence. There's, there's depression and, and mental illness. There's, there's homelessness. There's, there's brokenness everywhere we look. And there's even brokenness in our corporations, our schools, our communities, uh, every institution in, in, in the world has brokenness within it. And so we are to go out like the world's firefighters to, to heal the brokenness, to be light in the darkness and salt and light, as the, the Bible says. And, could, could I ask so, you something? Could yeah. I ask you something about that? Because that's really good. So I'm curious about something. So let's go back six months before you knew World Vision was going to talk to you. You're the CEO at Linux. Mm -hmm. Let's move all the way forward to six months after you've been president of World Vision. How much of your worldview was challenged, shaken? How, how much of how you saw the world changed from refugees to poverty? Was there a shift over that 12 to 18 months? Well, absolutely. I mean, First of all, before World Vision, you know, I like to say I was a poster child for the successful Christian life, right? I'm a young CEO. I've got a family of five children, a happy marriage, tithing my income, more than tithing my income, giving money to organizations like World Vision, you know. So I was trying to do it right. You know, I was trying to do it right uh, as a young man, um, but I didn't know what I didn't know, you know. And so 
ironically, my first trip uh, with World Vision. So I already said I'd never been to Africa. So literally in June of 1998, I was still CEO of Lenox. Two months later, in August of 1998, I was sent to Rakai, Uganda, which has been called ground zero for the AIDS pandemic in Africa. And the things I saw there were like a punch, a punch in the gut. I mean, I saw, you know, AIDS orphans, uh, you know, 12 year old boys raising their two brothers who are younger because their parents are both dead. And I was told that there were 60,000 orphans in Rakaya, Uganda alone, and 13 million AIDS orphans in Africa. Wow. I, I was devastated by this. And I, I, I kind of came back from that. And I said, how did I not know this? How did I not realize? I've been, I've been playing church all these years with no clue about what was happening on this particular issue, HIV and AIDS in Africa. And the American church had no interest in going to Africa to help people affected by AIDS. As you recall back then, it was a it was a stigmatized issue. Very it was much. part of the culture war. It's like, this is sexual immorality. And, you know, why should we help people that have been immoral? And yet I said, what about the 13 million orphans? Were they immoral? You know, what about the grandmothers who are now raising their own grandchildren because their sons and daughters have died of this disease? And so anyways, that was a, just a shock to my system. And of course, every World Vision trip I took after that opened my eyes further and further and further to, first of all, the, the beauty and diversity of God's creation and the people of the earth and the diversity within the, the Christian global church, yeah. you know, the beauty of yeah. the Christian church, the breadth of it. You know, I, it wasn't just a white steepled building in New England. It, it was a global two billion Christians from every nation, tribe, and tongue, you know. And so I actually wrote the whole in our gospel as a way to explain how I had to completely reconstruct yeah. my understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So, so let, me, let me ask you about that, because here, here's the dilemma. I, I, I say it this way. I understood the gospel. I knew nothing about the world. Mm-hmm. And yet I want to be a preacher preaching all over the world, being a missionary. I want to share the gospel, but I don't have time to understand the world. And what happened was through a unique situation, I got exposed to the world in a profound way. And I had that experience. So here's what I find. Conservative evangelicals say, Bob, you're crazy. What are you doing with all these refugees? Don't you know that, you know, terrorists can come or immigration or hunger or or take your pick. But the difference is not that I changed my theology. The difference was I saw the world. So I'm frustrated because... I want people to feel what I feel, to see what I see, and to experience it, and they don't. Because a lot of evangelicals, I promise you, I believe the majority of them, if they had the experiences you and I had, they would be the exact same way. How do we communicate? I mean, we write books, but still, I've written books about it. You've written books about it. And man, I've seen the church just get mean, and it's broken my heart. What... I don't know what to do. You know, when we start churches, I take pastors with me around the world and try to get their eyes open. Talk to me about that. Do you ever think about how how do we help people see the world? How do we bring it into their living room where it's not a TV news station, but we're there experiencing the pain of somebody up close? Any any thoughts on that? It's I mean, it's a it's a challenge for 20 years at World Vision. 
my job was to passionately persuade and convince and invite American Christians to care. And when I wrote the whole inner gospel, you know, at that time, I think there were 19,000 children who died every day of preventable causes, preventable causes, simple diseases, lack of clean water, diarrhea. And I made a statement in that book that if I was the coroner and I had to fill out the cause of death on their death certificates, I would write one word, apathy, apathy, wow. apathy by the church, apathy by the world's governments, apathy by people who just didn't really care. Um, but I also learned that people would care if you could help them understand, help them to see. And so it's funny, I used to speak all over the country, you know, for World Vision. I'd speak in churches and preach and Christian conferences and all this. And my wife kept telling me, and I, I'm a very um, uh, quantitative guy. So I'd, I'd hit people with a lot of statistics, you know, you know, how many people are doing that? You know, how many people have malaria? How many people lack clean water and all of these things? My wife pulled me aside and said, honey, she said, your statistics go right over the head of everybody in the audience. If you don't get to their heart, you're not going to get in through their head. <laughs> and uh, you got to tell stories. you got to tell stories. Stories are what people react to. And so I started to take her advice and I tried to get at least three stories of real human beings in every speech I gave. And and it started to melt the hearts of the people in the audience. You know, when when I was preaching uh, just a few years ago on the refugee crisis, I can't think of a other than AIDS, a more unpopular thing in the United States than to talk to people, Christian people, about refugees and their needs. And I, I used to say that, you know, the congregation, uh, the pastor would say, uh, we have Richard Stearns here today from World Vision. He's going to preach about the refugee crisis. And I could see the body language just closed down, people crossing their arms and leaning away as, you know, oh, great, I got to listen to this guy for 30 minutes talk about refugees. I don't like refugees. I don't want to hear about refugees. I didn't come to church to hear about refugees. And I had 30 minutes to get them to uncross their arms, lean in, listen, and maybe open their hearts and maybe even open their checkbooks uh, to do something financially to help refugees. And But what I found, Bob, is that when, when Good people really understand uh, on a personal level the suffering uh, of the poor. Uh, they do respond. Most of them do respond. In fact, when when I got back and decided we were going to tackle HIV and AIDS in Africa, what we did is we took dozens and dozens of pastors to see it for themselves, because we knew that if the pastor didn't see it, he yep. he would never feel it. He That's would right. never feel it, and. Uh, and so we saw conversion after conversion as these pastors who were, we paid their way. We said, look, we're going to pay your way, but you have to be the senior pastor. We're not going to just take your missions pastor. It has to be the senior pastor has to own it. And we broke a lot of pastors' hearts. And those pastors came back on fire for what their church could do to respond to HIV and AIDS. But it was a one church, one pastor at a time process. And, um, it's, it's just the, the challenge. We live in this insulated bubble, and we rarely think about people in the rest of the world. And, yeah. But I, I know that if good Christian people in America, if they met one of these refugees and heard their story, they would sit there crying just like you oh. or I have, yeah. weeping for the losses and the sadness of these stories of children and families broken by the Syrian war. And they would say, how can I help? I took a donor 
I had a donor at World Vision who was very skeptical about the refugee crisis, but he says, you know, you seem to care about it a lot, so maybe I need to learn something about this, but I have no interest in refugees. And we took him to uh, Lebanon and Iraq to meet Syrian refugees. He came back and pledged $25 million to help those refugees. He was just blown away by what he heard and what he saw. And he had a tender heart. And, you know, he just felt, I mean, he broke down in tears telling me about the people he had met and uh, what he had seen. So, But but this is the kingdom. It's people. It's brushing up to people that are hurting that you can bless and make a difference. I'll say this, Rich. I am more optimistic about pastors younger than me. I I think this (laughs) younger generation, I think they frankly... Uh, they care more about issues of justice and compassion, and they want to make a difference. Hey, let's talk about those traits, those characters, those values, that the, the character values you talked about. I just want to say each one, and, and just take your time. Talk to me why that's such a big one. Uh, and, and you start off, your very first one, and, and I'm sure you had a reason for putting them in the order that you did, but you start off with excellence. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, the thesis of my leadership book is that it's not about success, right? It's not, you know, I, God is more impressed with our character than our accomplishments. And yet that is such a contrarian statement because I don't know where people listening might work, but the people you work with or work for, they care a lot about your accomplishments. They, they're yeah. putting pressure on you to accomplish things. And so I, I didn't want I didn't want people to get the wrong idea that accomplishments don't matter. Uh, It's just that character matters more. God is more concerned about your character than the list of things you're going to put on your resume or your LinkedIn profile. And um, so I wanted to write a chapter on excellence because Christians should work with excellence. We should be the very best at what we do. We should give the very best efforts to our employer. I don't care who your employer is. It could be, you know, Jersey Mike sub shop could be your employer. You're there to give your very best because uh, we're ambassadors for Christ. So if if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, we need to be people of excellence. We need to be people that work hard and and leave it all on the field and, and, and give our very best. Now, it doesn't matter if you are a gifted leader with an IQ of 140 or you're an essential worker, you know, working in the back room of a supermarket, if you're a Christian, you need to give your best because that reflects on the faith that you, you hold and, and the savior that you serve. And so, uh, but I also say, be careful. Uh, Once you've worked with excellence, I used to tell my kids this, uh, you know, they'd be, there'd be a chemistry test the next day. Right. And I'd say, look, I don't care if you get an A, B, C, or D. I only care that you did your best. And right now you're watching TV and watching TV the night before the chemistry test is not giving your best. So if you show me that you studied all week and you've done all your assignments and you've done the best on the test and you got a C, I will celebrate because all you can do is the best you can do. That's what I used to tell them. All you can do is the best. You can't do better than the best you can do. And if the best you can do is a C, praise the Lord. Uh, But I I hope there's a few A's in there. Um, so I, but I think that applies to our, our our work as well. That you know, we all have shortcomings, and we just need to give our best. And yeah. I love that. You know, I I tell pastors all the time, uh, 
you have church members that are working at least 40 hours a week. You're professionals, 50, 60 hours a week. You ask them to be elders and deacons and mm-hmm. lead small groups and serve on committees and the mission trips and everything else. And we got to hit it with the same level of excellence that they do. If we want any respect or credibility. And sometimes I, 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 I don't think excellence is uh, viewed as a spiritual character quality. Yeah. But it is, and it demands, you know, and when you realize I'm not just doing this because somebody's paying me, this is what God's called me to do. The next one, love. Okay, now you're getting all fuzzy on me. What's that about? So love is a funny uh, character trait to put in a book on leadership. You know, you can think, well, (laughs) courage, yes, you know, uh, integrity, maybe yes, uh, boldness, you know, but love. And it probably wouldn't appear in any secular book on leadership, but the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The only thing that God calls us to do, the only thing, is to love him and to love our neighbors. And of course, loving our neighbors is not just the people next door, it's loving every person we come into contact with. And if you are in a workplace, you know, the the bullseye of your neighbors would be your coworkers, your colleagues at work. And so you're commanded, not not suggested, you're commanded to love your neighbors. You're you're it's the second greatest commandment, right? And uh there aren't many commandments in the New Testament. Uh there are three: the Great Commission, you know, love God, the greatest commandment, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we need to see the people we work with as objects of God's love and therefore our love. And there's a profound uh, uh, principle here that if you see your role as a leader, or even if you're not, you don't feel like you're a leader, but but you're working, if you see your role is primarily to be an agent of God's love to those people, that means you want to you're at that workplace. Yeah, you're going to earn a salary and, you know, you may get some recognition or whatever, but you're really there to help other people flourish, uh, to care about their lives, to care about their careers. If you're a leader over them, it's not about how can I be successful? It's how can I make them successful? I use the metaphor of leadership, uh, an orchestra and a conductor, right? The conductor's job is to make the musicians successful to successfully play the score, to bring out the giftedness and talents that they have in the best way possible so that they can succeed in their music. And uh, I think that's a wonderful metaphor of a Christian leader in the workplace, that if you say, look, I may or may not become CEO of this company, but I'm hoping that one of you might be, uh, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you realize your ambitions. I have now probably a dozen people that work for me at World Vision who are CEOs of other organizations right now. And I couldn't well, be more thrilled. That's awesome. I couldn't be more thrilled. And my my successor at World Vision was somebody that I hired and mentored, and, and he was able to become the president when I left. It's awesome. Humility. Are you a humble guy, Rich? Well, we all struggle with humility, don't, don't we? <laughs> um, we really do. Yeah, we but do. I think it's such a core uh attribute of Christian character. And for a a leader, you know, Rick Warren said it this way in The Purpose Driven Life, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so if you unpack that a minute, humility doesn't mean we deny our giftedness. I mean, if you're 
a gold medal Olympian, you don't have to deny that you're a great athlete, uh, but it means thinking about yourself less. So yeah, I'm very gifted at this or that or the other thing. I have these gifts and I'm grateful to God for giving me those gifts, but um, uh, but I'm more concerned about you and, and your situation and your gifts. I want to think about me less and I want to think about you more. But a humble leader, it's, 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 it's critical to leadership, and I don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist, a humble leader realizes that he or she doesn't have all the answers. Yeah. A humble leader realizes that seeking counsel of those around you in the organization or even outside the organization, you're going to make better decisions. Um, if you're a Christian and you look at your coworkers or your team, uh, C.S. Lewis said, we've never met a mere mortal. Uh, the people on your team are made in the image of God. They may be atheist or Jewish or Muslim or Christian or not, but they're made in the image of God and they're endowed with the creator's gifts. And they have gifts and talents that you don't have. They have perspectives that you don't see. And so when you, as a humble leader, seek their advice and seek their input, you will make better decisions and your team will be more motivated because nobody likes a leader that has all the answers. Yeah. Because what does that say to the team? Like, I'm just a pawn here. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't listen to me. Uh, you know, you don't want to be that leader. You want to be a leader that includes people and affirms them and makes them feel like they're making contributions and they're actually influencing your own decisions. And uh, so I've, told, uh, I've, I've worked with uh, people of different religions a lot. And those of us who have exclusivist theologies in the sense that we believe this is the way to God. I think we ought to be the most humble of all. And I've also learned in working with uh, global leaders, particularly of other faiths, you lead more by humility than by arrogance. And I know, and if you just listen to me, uh, but when they see you uh, uh, be a humble person and have the ability to laugh at yourself, it goes a long way. But let's talk about courage. I mean, you've, you've had to... Uh, Step up to the plate a few times that were not real easy, Rich. I've watched you in those situations. Talk to us about that. Well, courage courage is an important attribute. I think we see courage in the Lord, you know, in the way he faced his adversaries and went to the cross. I mean, just amazing courage in the face of what he was, you know, dealing with and what he knew was going to happen to him. And, uh, And courage is not about people not being afraid. We're all fearful. We all have fears. We, we There are things we should be afraid of. We should be afraid of COVID-19. You know, we should be afraid yeah. of, you know, things that uh, that threaten us or threaten our country. Um, but for a Christian, uh, we ought to be able to face those fears because of our faith, right? Lord, I'm fearful right now. How many times in scripture does it say, fear not, fear not, fear not? Jesus said it many times. It's all throughout the Old Testament. So if we really have faith, and we really trust the Lord for the outcomes, we can face our fears in, 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 a, in a better way. And, uh, you know, and essentially we're trusting God for the outcome. Lord, I'm fearful right now, I, I, but I'm trusting you for the outcome. One of the stories I tell in my book relates to the AIDS pandemic and how when I told our marketing team we were going to tackle HIV and AIDS and try to raise money for it, they looked at each other like I was from another planet, you know, and, and one guy said, look, Christians are never going to give to help people affected by AIDS. You know, that is a non-starter issue in the Christian community. And, and I said, well, 
but they're wrong. You know, these Christians are wrong because Christ commanded us to care for widows and orphans in their distress, right? And uh, and and that's what we need to do. And and who's going to tell them they're wrong if we don't? You know. And they were like, "Oh boy, this new guy is he's going to be a problem." We, we then did a Barna study on uh, attitudes toward evangel- evangelicals towards HIV and AIDS in Africa, and we asked them this simple question. Would you be willing to donate money to a reputable Christian organization that was helping children who had lost both of their parents to HIV and AIDS? Only 3% of evangelical Christians said, yes, I would definitely be willing to donate to that 3%. And the marketing guys said, see, we told you that dog won't hunt. You're not going to raise money. And I said, that dog may not hunt, but we're taking it out hunting, you know, and we're, so we, we tackled AIDS and and there was fear. I mean, AIDS was a fearful thing. Uh, I was the new president of World Vision. I was fearful that this would be a disaster, <laughs> you know, in my first campaign at World Vision. But I, I knew it was the right thing to do. And I had to trust the Lord for the outcome. I had to trust the Lord. And five years later, we had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We had sent dozens and dozens of pastors to Africa. We had launched a, a Hope Child sponsorship to help children affected by AIDS. We had and we had changed attitudes, uh, not just World Vision, but other voices like Rick Warren's and Franklin Graham's and others, you know, who tackled AIDS. And we, uh, you know, we turned the corner on that issue with the church and with the American public. Generosity. You know, I wanted to call that chapter greedlessness because and and that's not a word, so I, I chose generosity, and then I put greedlessness in parentheses in the book. But what I was trying to say there is money is a toxic substance, right? Money is, there are more warnings in scripture about the love of money and the way we handle our money and the way we manage our money. And for leaders, especially in corporate America, but it's also in the church, you know, my salary, uh, if there's a bonus program, those things become so large, looming in, in front of us that they distort everything we do. You know, money is kind of a necessary, necessary evil in a way. I think P.T. Barnum said, uh, money is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. I a love that quote. Master, a wonderful servant. And so um, basically what I'm saying is that leaders need to be people that are not primarily motivated by gain, financial gain. Yeah. You know, maybe there will be money, there will be bonuses, there will be promotions. All right, great. But if that's your core motivation, it will take you in a place you don't want to go. And as the Bible says, you will be pierced with many griefs and uh, it can destroy your family. It can destroy your workplace. One example I give is uh, the opioid pandemic and the executives who started out with the mission of helping people manage their medical pain not a bad goal, but the greed and the profit motive pushed them to sell more and more and more. And we've got to grow our revenue this year and next year. And before you know it, they were pushing opioids to everyone they could get to take them. They created a national crisis of opioid addiction. Ultimately, they were killing their own customers. They were literally killing their own customers. Why? Because they were motivated by money. Yeah. Instead of motivating by the mission of how do we help people with their medical issues as a pharmaceutical company, and now they're paying huge, you know, lawsuits, settlements uh, for the damage that has been done, but those lives will never be brought back. And it it was because of leaders who were motivated primarily by money and not by their mission. Self preservation. 
Perseverance, yeah. Perse- you know, a lot's been said and written about perseverance. There's, there's books about grit, you know, the leaders have to have grit. And, and part of that is just common sense. You know, perseverance means that you can endure difficult situations um, and get through them. You, I mean, it could be a health crisis that you have to endure uh, and persevere through. Uh, we just talked about a mutual friend who's got a health crisis that he's having to persevere through. And, and uh, it could be a, a terrible boss that you have who's, who's punishing and difficult and makes your life miserable. You know, every day you dread going to work because of the toxic culture in your workplace and it requires perseverance. But perseverance in a leader is so important because it helps the other people on the team believe we can get through this. We can we can come out on the other side. COVID is a great example. I mean, leaders have been challenged. Pastors have been challenged. And if you can demonstrate perseverance in the face of adversity day in and day out, you will help the people around you be able to persevere as well and get you through um, the crisis and come out on the other side. Yeah. So it, it, it's critically important. You know, Rich, I've, I've uh, come to the conclusion that like love, that's one of the core values of humanity. It's one of the top mm-hmm. ones because courage is just a, the first three or four steps. After that, when you get deep into the water, I'll, I'll never forget when we integrated our church a few years ago. Uh, everybody was excited about it when we announced it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but man, when we started moving into the water, it was rough. And mm-hmm. and and you know, you you've got to have a sense of this is what God wants us to do. I'm, I'm not quitting. It may kill me, but I'm not quitting because it's the right thing to do and uh, not give up or turn back. Balance. Now, now you said balance. Okay, Rich, I'm going to push back on you. I I don't know I believe in balance. And (laughs) and I liked your chapter. Here's why. There's nothing balanced about the cross. There's nothing balanced about a Marine giving their life, you know, in battle to protect other people. Sometimes I I think – Balance is something that happens here and there, and we live on the extreme edges. Guys like you and me that are out doing crazy stuff, push back. I don't care. What do you mean by balance? Well, I think it's important to have balance in your life as a leader, well, as a, as a human being, but as a leader. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, I, I use a scripture uh, in my, my book about the time when Jesus, you know, who's in, you know, Jesus at that point was famous and uh, besieged by people and followers who wanted a piece of him, right? They wanted to hear him speak. They wanted to hear him teach. And there's this one passage, I forget which of the gospels is in, where he withdraws uh, away from the crowds to pray. And the disciples are like going crazy. Like, where is he? You know, where, where'd he go? He's, he's the main speaker. You know, <laughs> it's like you're having a conference and the keynote speaker is nowhere to be found. And they, they finally find him off praying and, and they say, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you, you know? And I thought that was such a beautiful little uh, picture of uh, what our lives can sometimes look like, you know, when all of these demands are being placed on you as a leader and, and, and uh, you know, where are you? And you've got to be here Monday and you got to speak there Tuesday and you got to do that. But Jesus tried to maintain some balance uh, in his, certainly in his prayer life. You know, he recognized that he had to take time yeah. away from the pressure to recharge his batteries, to re, get re in touch with his, his father. The other story about balance is the founder of World Vision. You probably know this story. is a guy named Bob Pierce. And Bob Pierce was, one of his board members once described him as 
a psychotic for God. Uh, <laughs> and he was so he was so driven to help the poor that he became a very destructive personality. You know, he was prone to wild excesses and, uh, you know, making commitments he couldn't. He, he, I met his widow. Uh, he traveled nine months every year, 20 years in a row when he was uh, building World Vision and, um, and then later Samaritan's Purse. And Bob Pierce was fired by the World Vision Board of Directors uh, 17 years after he started World Vision because his leadership was so erratic. His family was in shambles. His marriage was in shambles. Um, and he literally had a breakdown, a nervous breakdown. And, uh, and, and he was destroying the organization he'd created because he was so driven for results. And so it was kind of a morality play that, you know, what, and I think pastors especially fall into this trap, ministry leaders, because you say, I'm doing it for the Lord. So it's, yeah. it's the perfect place for a workaholic to hang out uh, in full view, because who can criticize a world, uh, a workaholic that's doing it for the Lord. But I mean, there are periods in your life where I think the Lord needs you to work hard and wants you to work hard and, and maybe harder than you'd like to, but we need rest. We need Sabbath. We, we, we need these periods uh, of, and we need, and balance is just not just about time at work and time away from work. Balance is about having friendships, having time with your family, it's about reading and 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 seeing the world through different lenses. Maybe attending a play and and taking in some of the arts and being a balanced uh, individual who uh, we talked earlier about seeing the world and understanding the world. You know, learn more about the world. You know, go to another country and meet people from a different place. It gives you perspective, and you make better decisions as a leader. And and it's you're going to be a better leader if you can have so, some balance. So really, when you're talking about balance. You're talking about being more of a holistic person versus yes. just work, 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 work and and never think or read or catch your breath. I don't know about you, but the thing that keeps me centered more than anything else uh, is daily, just early in the morning, just me and God, my Bible, my journal, a cup of Starbucks, a vanilla candle. I don't know. It just <laughs> centers me to be up early when no one else is moving around and. Well, I'm with you every part of the way, except for the vanilla candle. I can't, I can't approve <laughs> that's my, that. That's my wife's fault. She's got me into all that. <laughs> hey, you got to try it, man. Uh, what, what about, what about laughter? You have a good, do you have a good time, Rich? Are you a fun guy? I love to laugh. And, you know, when I was recruited to World Vision, so first of all, my sense of humor has always been a part of my personality and a part of my leadership style. I mean, uh, people that work for me thought I should go into stand-up or something, you know, instead of being a, maybe they wanted to get rid of me as a boss. But um, <clears throat> so I really believe humor is a wonderful gift that a leader can give to the people they lead. It eases tension. It, 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 it overcomes barriers. It puts things in perspective. You know, we're in a difficult situation if we can laugh at it a little bit, step outside of the pressure we're feeling, and it can ease the tension in a room. You know, you yeah. walk in and everybody's yeah. looking at the CEO and what's he going to say, what's he going to do, and you, you, you crack a little joke and everybody has a good laugh and it puts people at ease. And but um, you know, when I came to World Vision, because humor was so important in my personality and my leadership style, I thought, oh no, at World Vision, nobody's laughing. I'm sure that they're just you know. 
people with long faces who every day are facing, you know, child mortality and human trafficking and poverty. Uh, I'll die at World Vision. I'll, <laughs> I'll die there if I can't laugh, if I can't laugh with the people around me. And to my delight, I found out that not only did people at World Vision like to laugh and have a good laugh about things, they needed to laugh yeah, because they were bet. facing poverty and child trafficking and all of these things. They needed desperately the, the relief that laughter could bring them. And so I think humor, uh, different people will, will do humor in different ways, right? We're not all natural stand-up right. comedians. And, but just lightening the mood in, in a workplace is, I think, just a healthy, important thing to do. With one caveat, humor can be biting and devastating as well if you direct it at someone as a target. Yeah, so the I best agree. kind of humor is self-deprecating humor. You know, I agree. Take your, don't take yourself so seriously. Make a joke about yourself and uh, or the situation you find yourself in as a team. And, you know, that kind of humor uh, lifts people's spirits. I hate sarcastic humor or someone yeah. puts somebody down. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. All right. Just some fast answers to these. Uh, define what love your neighbor means to you. Well, I've already talked about loving your neighbor, but, uh, you know, I summarize the entire message of the Christian faith to be just this love God and love other people always, period. You don't right, have to be so, a so, so huh? let me ask you, let me ask you this way. Who was the hardest person you ever had to love that oh, you can man. tell us on the podcast? <clears throat> I can't reveal that, you know, um, <laughs> but I've got my top 10 list. But, you know, uh -huh. one of the things in the book, you know, I say is that Jesus called us to love our enemies, too. And so I say yeah. in the book, you know, that horrible person three cubicles away from you that is the bane of your existence at work. You need to love them. You yeah. need to when when they're mean to you, you need to respond in love. When when they undermine you, you need to respond in grace. When when they talk behind your back about you, you need to affirm their good qualities. And, and I say, you can't change them. You know, they're going to be who they are, but you can change the way you react to them. And you might find if you take that horrible person and you treat them with kindness consistently, no matter what they do to you, they might actually start to change their behavior, you know, That's and good. So anyways, it's hard to do and you need to pray for those people because you can only love them with supernatural love sometimes. Favorite food? Well, it's got to be between pizza and ice cream, you know. Uh, okay. Favorite music and don't say gospel. No, I won't say it. My favorite music is the pop music that came out between 1965 and 1975. I'm still trapped with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's not bad. And, you know, for me to watch the Grammys now, I don't know who any of those people are. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Last question. Uh, what are you most excited about right now? Well, I'm, I'm excited about, obviously, this new book on leadership and, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to share, you know, kind of 50 years of leadership, learning mistakes, wisdom, um, things that I wish I'd known when I was 25 or 35 that I can now share. And so I'm hoping that, you know, God gets this book into the hands of people that it'll make a real difference because there are things we all wish we would have known when we were younger. 
Uh, sometimes we learn the hard way, right? You always tell your kids, you can learn it the hard way or you can listen to me. It's <laughs> good. That's and good. Uh, so, so I'm excited about that. I, I'm excited still about the mission of World Vision in the world. Um, I'm president emeritus of World Vision, which means uh, I'm told emeritus means without merit and it's also without salary. So, <laughs> um, but I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a cheerleader for the mission of World Vision in the world because I think it's such an important ministry. So, and I'm excited about my six grandsons who I'm dying to see now that COVID is starting awesome. to lift a little bit. Lead like it matters to God. Values-driven leadership in a success-driven world. Get the book. Rich Stearns, this has been incredible, man. Thanks well, for this. you got great questions and great perspectives to add to the conversation, Bob. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this very informative and intriguing episode of the Bold Love Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found this podcast helpful or interesting or thought-provoking, we would love for you to give us a review and subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're listening to. So doing this will help others find their way to this podcast. Doing this actually helps listeners around the world connect with the message. So drop us a review. It'd be very helpful if you could share this on on social media as well to help spread the message of bridge building and peacemaking. For full show notes, links, and details about this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com, bobrobertsjr.com, and you can find those there. We appreciate you so much for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time next time.